Well, good morning. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I have to do the children's sermon next Sunday, so please pray for me. Um, <laughs> well, um, Dr. Joe Evans, who worships in the first service, has been trying to get me to play golf with him uh, since I've been here in Murfreesboro and at St. Mark's. And I didn't grow up playing golf. Uh, I grew up in a pretty poor family, and uh, golf just wasn't something that we had the financial means to do. And so I've never really played a lot of golf in my life. Uh, But when I went to Fayetteville, Tennessee, to serve at First United Methodist Church there, there were a group of guys that were roughly my age that played golf all the time. And so they wanted me to come out and play golf with them. And they made it pretty easy for me. I mean, they said, we'll give you some clubs or loan you some clubs so that you won't have to buy anything. And we'll give you some free complimentary passes to the country club so that you can go out there and play uh, at the club. And you can go to the uh, driving range and you can practice to your heart's content. And so they made it pretty easy for me to say, okay, I will play this game of golf. They talked about how wonderful it was and how when you're out there on the greens, you're just communing with God. It's just soaking in and absorbing God's beautiful creation and just sharing in good Christian fellowship one with another. Well, I went out and attempted to play golf for a while, but I decided that I wasn't for me, that I wasn't going to continue to do this because um, it didn't bring out the best part of Tommy. <laughs> Instead of communing with God, I found myself cursing at God. It, it, Golf really does make preachers cuss. I don't know if you ever wondered that, but it really does. I'm here to tell you. And I never once felt like I was at one with God in all creation and in Christian fellowship. What I wanted to do is to take that club and wrap it around a tree. What I wanted to do when I'd see all of these people I was playing with, I'd want to take the golf cart and just drive it off into a water hazard so they'd have to walk for the rest of the holes. That's what I really wanted to do. So I decided that, that I wasn't going to play this game of golf. And what it really boiled down to is that even though these people that I was playing with were about my same age, whereas I had never picked up clubs in my life before, they'd been playing golf since they were little bitty kids. And they'd had lots and lots of practice Back then, they didn't have anything to worry about. They didn't have a job. They didn't have families. They could just get out of school every afternoon. And some of them took golf in school, so they got credit for going out and playing golf as part of school. But they would play every single day over and over and over again. And I realized that if I started today playing golf, that I would not ever have the amount of time that they've had in their lifetime. Even if I played for the rest of my life, I would never, ever be as good as those people that I was playing with. 
And what was even more frustrating to me is that they were likely going to get better. <laughs> and so I just decided that I was not going to play golf anymore because golf takes a lot of practice and I just didn't think I would ever be able to practice enough that I would enjoy being out there with those guys day in and day out. So, Joe Evans, you drive your own golf cart, buddy. I'm going to stay in the church. <laughs> well, a few weeks ago, a colleague of mine, a clergy colleague of mine, was talking about a book that he just recently read that really sort of piqued my curiosity. I think the book's been out a while. I'd never heard of it, but it's by Malcolm Gladwell, and the book is called Outliers, Outliers. And so one of the things that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in this book is what he calls the 10,000 rule. And he says that if you want to get really, really good at something, you have to spend a minimum of 10,000 hours doing that thing. And he's done a lot of research to support this 10,000 rule. I mean, he's looked at people in all sorts of different walks of life, in all sorts of different professions of life. And what he's realized is that the people who end up being really, really good in their chosen career or profession or hobbies, every single one of them spent at least 10,000 hours doing that particular thing before they ever got really, really good at it, before they began to excel at it in a particular area. And just to give you a little bit of an example of, of what he, some of the research that he did, the first thing that he looked at was uh, grandmasters of chess. Grandmasters of chess. Now, I know that like, uh, you, like me yesterday, you were probably searching through the channels looking for a chess tournament on TV, right? I don't know a lot about grandmasters of chess or what it really takes to get it, but all of what I do know is that according to Gladwell, that there's only been one grandmaster of chess in all of chess history that was able to achieve that status with less than 10,000 hours of practice. And that was Bobby Fischer and he did it in about 9,000 hours. He finally became Grandmaster of Chess after 9,000 hours of playing chess. Uh, Bill Gates is another person. Bill Gates uh, started when he was in the eighth grade. He had access to the best, newest computer in the country at the time, and he began to spend the summers eight hours a day, all summer long, and then throughout the years studying what makes this computer work. How, how do you go about programming? What's the language that you have to use? What do you have to do to, to make it do what it's capable of doing? What could you do to make it even better? He spent over 10,000 hours practicing on this computer, and what do you know? He ends up creating Microsoft. Okay, what about the Beatles? The Beatles came to America in 1964 and took America by storm. But do you know what the Beatles were doing before they came to America and became the next best thing? They were a house band in a strip club in Hamburg, Germany. But every day in that strip club for eight 
hours a day, seven days a week, they played music together. They practiced together. So that by the time they came to America, they had already performed 1,200 times as a band. It takes practice. Uh, There are lots of other examples that we could give about what it takes to be a good practice. I want to see if I've left any of them out. Oh, classical composers. Classical composers. If, uh, If you look at every classical composer that's ever lived, the signature piece that they composed, the one that they're most well known and regarded for, every single one of those happened after 10 years or 10,000 hours of composing. And some people might say, well, what about Mozart? Didn't, wasn't his most famous or the signature piece that he's known for when he was 21 years of age? Yes, but Mozart, many believe, started composing when he was about 10 years old. And those early things were not that good. It takes practice. Well, we're in the second week of our uh, study on the book or the letter of James here. And um, one of the verses that I want to lift up to you today, it begins in the 22nd verse of chapter 1. Be doers and not just hearers of only. I, I reminded you last week that many believe that James is none other than the brother of Jesus And scripture seems to suggest that Jesus and James and the rest of his family weren't always on the same page. Uh, There's a passage of scripture that says that Jesus' brothers, his family, were waiting outside for him while he was teaching. And they were convinced that Jesus was out of his mind. They didn't really understand what Jesus was doing, what Jesus was saying, why he was saying it, or how he was saying it. They were confused about just what Jesus' purpose in life really was. But apparently, over the course of time, while they might not have been on the same page, uh, James began to act more and more like his brother. And that's the title of the series, really. We talked about the title being, Be Like Your Brother. Don't you know that if you were the brother of Jesus, that on one time or another, probably every single day, somebody would come up to you and say, why can't you just be more like Jesus? I mean, look at him. He's doing such a great job over here. Well, apparently James did become more like his brother, Jesus. There are several uh, scripture passages that sort of give us that indication Uh, The first uh, is which that uh, James, when they got ready to replace the apostle Judas Iscariot, who had died, they called together the people, and James and his family were also present for that. And so something after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus made James want to be a part of the selection of that new apostle to take Judas's place. Scripture tells us that Peter was arrested and thrown in jail and persecuted because of his faith in Christ and his espousing of his Christian beliefs. And when Peter finally got out of prison, we're told in the text that one of the first people that Peter wanted to alert that he'd been freed and liberated from prison was none other than James, the brother of Jesus himself. And when the early church is beginning to struggle about what do we do with these Gentiles that want to be 
uh, a part of this Christian community? What role should they play? And how uh, much a part of this uh, church should they be? It was James who stood up and led that conversation, the brother of Jesus. And James is regarded as the early leader of the Christian uh, church in Jerusalem. And so James, it seems, really did become more and more like his brother, Jesus. And so when we're reading the text today, that's what I want us to be listening for. As we read what James writes in his letter or in this book, I want us to to think about, is there any uh, thing that James has written here, that he's communicating here, that sounds a lot like his big brother, Jesus. And the first thing in the scripture lesson today was when James says, be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Maybe you remember Jesus. You know, Jesus got one sermon that was included in our New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You know, I'd hate to be defined by my one sermon that you may have heard me preach. But Jesus has one complete sermon in the scripture, and it's the Sermon on the Mount. And near the end of that sermon, Jesus says this. Those who hear and do these words are like a wise man who builds a house upon the rock. And he talks about when the storms and when the rains come, those who have heard the word of God and those who do the word of God, they will be able to stand firm when the storms of life come. Jesus was saying that it's not just about hearing what I'm saying, but it's about doing what I say. And if you do what I say, then you're going to be able to stand firm when adversity strikes. It's as if Jesus was saying, it takes practice. You've heard it, and you just got to do it. And you just got to do it over and over and over again. Now, if you look back earlier in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said some really hard things, some really difficult things, some things that uh, I'd like just to lift up a few of them to you now. One of the things that Jesus said was, Uh, You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you even have uh, anger in your heart, then you are subject to judgment. He said in that same Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you see some fine looking thing walking down the street and you stare and you, you lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery by doing that. And then Jesus went on to say, uh, if somebody slaps you on one side of the cheek, turn your other cheek and let them slap you again. And then Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who uh, persecute you. And then Jesus said, do not judge, for if you judge... In the same way, you will be judged. Now, do you think Jesus said those things just to hear himself talk? No. Jesus said those things 
because he really wanted us to try to do those things in our life. That there was some sort of spiritual value in, in honoring and doing the word of God. And so Jesus was clearly communicating in his life. I don't want you to just hear what I'm saying, but I want you to do it. And to do it, it takes practice. You know, a lot of times we think that the people who are really, really good in their craft, that they just came out of the mother's womb, you know, gifted in that way. You know, that it's just natural and that it's just inherent and that it's just something that you're born with. But according to Malcolm Gladwell, and I say much of our experience, that's not always true. It takes practice. And what's true of actors and what's true of golfers and what's true of composers and what's true of computer programmers is also true of us in faith and discipleship. It takes daily practice. We who have heard the word of God seeking to do the word of God in our communities that helps us to become more effective in doing those things. James puts it this way in his, uh, in his book here in the first chapter. That if you don't practice these things that you've heard, you'll forget them. Now he uses the image that to me is not very helpful. Maybe it's helpful for you. He says it's sort of like you're standing in front of a mirror checking yourself out. And then you turn away from the mirror and you walk away and you don't come back. And so you end up forgetting what you look like. I don't know, it almost feels like he wants me to stand here in the mirror all the time, you know, and just kind of checking myself out so I don't forget. But what he's saying is, if, if, you, if you don't uh, constantly keep reminding yourself of what you've heard and what you've seen, if you don't constantly keep seeking to do the things that God has said that God wants us to do, that we will forget. And then James goes on to say that if you obey God's word, the word that you've heard, if you will obey it, that you will be blessed. That you will be blessed. And he says something here that's sort of counterintuitive. He says that, that um, you know, if I don't do my own will in favor of doing God's will, that seems to me like that's no fun. You know, I want to be able to do my own thing. I want to be able to do what I want and when I want to do it. And I want to be able to do it without guilt and without shame. That sounds like the way to live life, right? That's what freedom is really about. I can do whatever in the world I want to do. But James says that real freedom is found when you let go of your own desires and you instead seek to do the desires of God. Because when you're hearing God's word, and then when you do God's word, what James says is that when you're doing God's word, that's when you finally have the freedom to be all that God truly wants you to be. And that all God truly desires for you to be. And that there's nothing more beautiful and wonderful than living life like that. And then James goes on to say that 
You can be religious, but your religion is empty if it doesn't ultimately result in loving the least and the last and the lost. As he says here, the orphans and the widows in distress. If your religion doesn't lead you to love God and love the people that God loves, then it's not worth much. And what James is saying sounds a lot like big brother Jesus. Do you remember when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength? And then love your neighbor, the people that God loves. Love them like you love yourself. And Jesus says the whole of the gospel is summed up in that one phrase. And so when James says your religion is empty if it doesn't lead you to love God and to love all the people that God loves, It's not easy, and it takes practice. When I read God's Word sometimes, and I realize how difficult it is, you know what it makes me want to do? It makes the preacher want to cuss. (laughs) It, It makes the preacher want to wrap the club around the tree, drive the cart into the water, because it is hard. It's not easy. But, oh. If you just keep practicing, if you just keep hearing the word and then seeking to do the word, um, all of a sudden you wake up one day and you can't imagine living any other way. You can't imagine how life could be any sweeter than to know that you are in the sweet spot of God's will. It takes practice.